Hello and welcome to the Next Shift Podcast, a place for current and former law enforcement to come together and share stories of life after law enforcement. I promise you it's not as scary as you might think, and life is not over just because your career is. I'm your host, Jess Flores, and I myself have transitioned out of the field. And while it's definitely been one of the hardest and scariest things I've ever had to do, it has also been one of the most rewarding. It's what led me to rediscovering my identity without the job, redefining my purpose and what it kind of looks like now, and reigniting passions I had kind of let go to the wayside. It's what led me to creating Next Shift LLC and now this podcast. It is my mission to help you create your next shift by helping you remember who you are behind the badge. You'll hear stories from those who have already made the transition, their spouses and their perspectives of the transition, as well as some resources. Thank you so much for being here. I look forward to serving you. What is up, Next Shift fam? Your girl Jess back with a guest today, my guy Travis Gribble, who I met on Instagram. We just had a whole thing about do we use LinkedIn or not? So we're going to get connected on LinkedIn if we're not already over there. So you guys can start following him as well. Um, but he is a retired Leo and he is the founder of My Arena. But I don't want to steal his thunder. So Travis, if you could give us a brief intro into who you are, uh, how you got into law enforcement and how long you were in law enforcement, I would appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Travis Gribble's my name. I had uh, retired after 24 years in law enforcement. The first half of my career was um, I had 11 years I spent in Michigan uh, working for a, you know, smaller rural sheriff's department. I think we maybe had 15 on the road when I left and then a jail. And then I'd always want to work for uh, a big city. So I ultimately ended up lateraling to Mesa, Arizona, across the country, which is Mesa's just outside of Phoenix. Um, vastly different. I think, you know, we float right around 850 to 900 officers, 530,000 people. Wow, that's um, a change. So, yeah, it was a big change, but good. It was exactly what I was looking for. So uh, lateral there. Um, most of my career was either spent on the street in patrol capacity or attached to SWAT in one way or another. I think I did seven years total part-time SWAT and then nine years of full-time on a full-time team in Mesa. So, wow. So yeah. you really haven't seen anything in your career I'm gathering. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. <laughs> I, I often say in my, the stuff I do now, like, I don't know that there's much I haven't seen or at least can't like, yep. I could picture that pretty quickly. You know, you know, how yeah, it goes. it's crazy how that happens. You've seen something and you're like, no, I could totally see that happening. <laughs> yeah. Like nothing surprises me anymore. So yeah, yeah, I love that. And before we go on, I want to talk just a minute about that transition from small department to big department, because I did the reverse. I did big department to small department, and that was a shock to the system um, in its own ways. But I feel like there's a lot of officers who are still in right now. They're considering getting out, but maybe really they just need a shift in the department they're in. And we get this like image in our head that this is our department and I got to stay here. And this is my career. There are plenty of options out there if you still love this job, if you still have a desire to do this job, you can do it. So would you talk just a little bit about that transition from small to really big? Yeah, thank you for asking that. And yeah, kind of, I guess, adding on to what you said, what an amazing time it is right now with everyone recruiting everywhere. For those people that want to stay in the profession, you can literally like 
okay, what are your top five things you need to see? And obviously that always changes with a new chief, new sheriff, whatever. But for the most part, you can pick and choose. So for me, I think it was a writ. I had a lot of benefits. So working in the small department, um, I'm sure you know from you take the original call, we would take it all the way through to Dustin for fingerprints, footprints, following the investigation all the way through. So I learned how to do everything. I mean, we had no choice, right? The yep. only time we would call in the state police who had the big, you know, crime scene stuff was on a major, like a homicide or something, which didn't happen yep. very often. So I got a ton of experience and working in a small town to where my backup may be 10, 15 minutes away. I learned before it was whatever, what is it called? Um, the de-escalation or it was called verbal, verbal judo. judo. Yeah. yeah. I learned that on my own. Cause that's just how you have to do like, Hey, yeah, I really should be going hands on with you at this moment. However, I'm going to wait a few minutes till my backup gets here and try to talk your way out of some things. So, yeah. um, so then I go to the big city. So I was very fortunate, <clears throat> number one, because I've heard horror stories with this. So I had 11 years on at this time. You get assigned to an FTO. I've heard horror stories where like, they don't care what experience you have. They treat you like shit, whatever it is. You know what I mean? So yep. I was blessed to have, I only had two FTOs because I went through the program pretty quick that they both told me right away. They said, hey man, we respect your experience. You do policing the way you do it. And we'll just show you the paperwork for Mesa. If there's any fine tuning that, you know, our agency is going to say, and I cannot be more thankful for that. Now, what it did give me then going from small to large was, holy crap, these benefits are amazing of what do you mean? I take the original point in crime scene or the complaint crime scenes there. And it would be funny because once I got a little, you know, salty or seasoned in the department and you'd hear these young kids bitching about crime scene or whatever, I'm like, you guys have no idea how good you have it. You know, it we, <laughs> right. I mean, so that part of it, I think was amazing. Was it a big hurdle for me to go to big city policing? It was just an eye opener. Mm -hmm. It was what I wanted, but I chose to work in the, you know, the, I guess the busiest, the, the most, the nasty districts of where it's like everything, crime, you know, 24 seven shooting, stabbings, prostitution, street level drugs, all that. The stuff. reason we become cops, <laughs> the shit we want to deal with. Yeah. And, and we all are cops wherever we go. It's just, if you're going to go to a place that has more volume, I, I would say, you know, yeah. um, but the transition was good. Now, it's funny you ask that because being here in Montana, where I live now, I have met some police officers doing my thing here in the state that they've come from really large departments coming down to a very small rural sheriff's department. It has been a difficult transition, to say the least. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, because they, yeah, they wanted away from whatever the politics, just whatever's going on in their big cities. But they're like, holy shit, we had a lot of really good resources that we don't have here or lack of training. Um, so I, I don't know. I think, you know, the way I did it, it really worked for me, not to say that it can't work the other way, but I think it was good for me having all those years in a very small department with not a lot of resources and then going and realizing like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. So absolutely for sure. So my husband went from a small agency here in Missouri 
where they had to do like you did. They had to take it, you know, from, hey, I stopped this car to prosecutors getting it. And that it builds your relationships across, you know, the detective boundary, the prosecutor, the judges, you get to know everybody. So when you've got a good case, you get to actually get somebody yeah. put in jail. And then mm -hmm. he comes up to the big city, everybody's dream. Let's go to the big city and become a cop here, which is where I started. And you're like, I just have to like sit here or I just have to call a detective and they're going to do the work. I'm sorry. Like, and it's very yeah. hard for him to stop where he's supposed to stop instead of taking it. And yeah. for me, I didn't have to do shit. I literally just sat on a crime scene. Mm -hmm. I called a detective. They came out. I made sure the news didn't get a hold of me and I, I left to the next call. So I had to then learn how to do all of those extra steps, mm -hmm. build those relationships later in my career. And it's, yep. it's funny how that works and the dichotomy of it. But like for him, that's a department that can't pay you anything being that small either. So you're right. really trading sometimes pay and benefits for different things. And the grass mm -hmm. is not always greener. I do want to point that out to people. You're going to have your own shit on every department. You yeah. have to figure out who you are and do what you need to do to get through you it. Know, you just mentioned something that I will bring up that did frustrate me. Working in the small town, if I had a case that maybe the prosecutor denied charges at first or they were questioning, it would be a phone call and I'm in their office in two minutes yeah. versus when I got to Mesa and I was like, Oh, I'm going to argue this. They're like, people laugh at me. They're like, they're not going to talk. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not. <laughs> and when you have, you know, a hundred different prosecutors doing this work, they're not going to touch you, you know? And that part I did because there were times where I could convince the prosecutor you know, you have my report, you have all the evidence. Now, let me talk to you. Like, this yeah. is what's going through my head. Maybe I didn't articulate it well enough in the report. Let's talk some more. And they're like, oh yeah, now I see it. Let's charge them. So that, yeah. that kind of, that stuff frustrated me, but you learned to like, whatever, this is out of my control. I just don't deal with it. Yeah. And I would encourage any listener who is in one or the other type department, if you're getting that burnout feeling, you're getting that, I want to get out, I've lost this, but you still kind of want it go do a ride along. You're not like signing a contract with another agency. Just go ride with a different type of agency and just see, see what it looks like, get a feel for it. Um, obviously people are wanting to recruit you. So you might as well do it and see what happens. Um, probably get some nice bonuses too. But as far as you're doing this, you're doing SWAT, you're doing all the things you clearly get out at some point. What was your deciding factor to get out? Was there something that pushed you to it or was it just, I'm eligible. I'm, I'm leaving. So actually I retired um, due to a post-traumatic stress injury retirement. So okay. I had 24 total years and I, I mean, I know we're going to get into this, but what I do now, I'm an advocate for mental health wellness for our first responders. I was one throughout my entire career that just said, yeah, I don't believe in that. I'm supposed to just shrug it off, stuff all the trauma down, don't mm -hmm. deal with it. And um, thought it was kind of, uh, just a bunch of bullshit, to be honest with you. And um, till I had a very significant call in 2016, people can listen to other podcasts that I've been on to hear about that. And, but very um, traumatic with a, um, a sex trafficking thing with a little girl. And then it just kept building up after that to where call after call, I wasn't dealing with things like I had in the past. Mm -hmm. And ultimately Actually, my final call of my policing career was a hostage rescue that we believed we knew someone had already been shot, a little girl exited. We believed that we were going in to rescue the rest of the family and we found everybody dead. 
And that was the, it was the first time I didn't understand what was going on with me at the time, but very common thing when we have it set in our mind, Hey, this is going to be a rescue and it becomes a recovery. Yeah. And yeah, I hit rock bottom and finally broke down to go in and get some help. And just, yeah, after through months and months of therapies, like, yeah, it's time for me to exit. And, uh, it, you know, which was not an easy decision by any means. Um, no matter how you leave this uh, profession, uh, there are trials and tribulations that come with that. That's why I love what you're doing because we do an absolutely shitty job of preparing people to, you know, leave this profession, retire, however you want to word it. And, uh, even with the benefit that I had to fall into what I'm doing right now by, you know, no, just surprise of everything, sequence of events that happened with me, still an extremely difficult transition for me. And quite frankly, to this day is still difficult for me to be out of the profession at times, you know, cause you've been wired for that for so long. So yeah, that was, that was the thing that, that ended up uh, getting me out of law enforcement. So. Now, was that obviously there are calls, they're just going to get to us. And I feel like people's perspectives of this job change a lot, especially when like a family dynamic changes, maybe a kid comes in or something like that. And then that call that didn't bother you now really bothers you. And you're like, whoa, that I didn't expect that. And again, we right. don't really give resources or like how to deal with that when that happens. Did right. you choose to go get help on your own or did somebody have to make you go do that? Because I know... That is a big thing for cops, man. We don't need help. And we push it off for so long. Sometimes mm-hmm. it ends tragic. Yeah. So a couple, a couple of situations that, so that big, the really big call for me happened in 2016. I knew I was not well, but I wasn't telling people. I went to our peer group at the department, kind of lied to them. I had been through a divorce in 2015 and said, Hey, I just need to go see someone about my divorce. Cause I didn't want them to know that I was struggling. Right. So sent me to a thing through EAP, which I have very strong opinions about EAP and how it does not work for that yeah. type of stuff. And uh, um, I was sent to someone that quite frankly, didn't really give a shit. And they gave me, so I walked out, I went four different times, gave a little bit more and ultimately walked out of there really probably flipping him off as I walked out of his office. Cause I was like, I'm done with this therapy is exactly what I thought it was. Yeah. I was fortunate I met my now wife who she worked internet crimes against children and her unit was the only unit in our department that was required to go see someone. And so they, they did not like the EAP route. So they were allowed to find their own person and they found an organization that that's all they do is help first responders and veterans and um, like ER staff. And she was pressing me for quite some time. You gotta go see someone. You gotta go see someone. And after this last call, I was quite honestly just a mess inside. And I finally like, yeah, I, I got to do something. Cause I was, yeah, I was having going down the road with the whole suicidal ideations, all that stuff, which is very common in our profession and didn't, again, we don't talk about it. So mm-hmm. I just like, Hey, I'm, I'm messed up. I'm broken. I'm a wreck. Like I'm everything I stood for. And so I went to this new person uh, Jennifer Cooper, who I, was my former therapist, and I now present with her all over the United States. Amazing. And um, she saved my life. Yeah. So because she knew what we needed, EMDR therapy, she knew our culture, she knew how to talk to me. Quite honestly, she wouldn't take my shit. Like she was, she was <laughs> yeah. not afraid to stand up to me and say, no, Travis, 
like with drinking, all that stuff. Like I had to do a total reset on everything. So because they're going to yeah. tell us the things we don't want to hear. And yeah. that's their job is to tell us that. And it's up to us to then yeah. swallow the pride, swallow the ego and be like, you're right. I do need to fix A, B and C. But so that is a common thing. People don't trust the EAP. They think their department's going to find out. They don't trust that the therapists actually know what they're doing. I have heard horror stories about it. Um, I have used EAP myself, not for job related things, but relationship way back yeah. in the day. Um, and it did, it took a couple of therapists to really kind of find one you jive with. And so I want to end the stigma, first of all, of people going to therapy, but don't just give up after one, even two, right. if you're not jiving, please go. And when you were going through that, that's the same year I got out. So it's been eight years now. Culturally competent wasn't a word I ever heard until this past year. <laughs> um, yeah. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like there were resources out there for us, or at least they weren't presented like they are today. So did you, you said you went to the first couple EAP that didn't work. You went to your wife's, they had this person who was culturally competent right. for dealing with people or the, the things that we deal with and see. And that was really what helped. That all oh, by far. I mean, she, again, you know, I don't, she had a background of her dad was a U.S. Marshal, Vietnam vet. She knew that stuff. She had been a probation officer, decided that she wanted to help, you know, other first responders. So she went into that. So that's an obvious like gravitating towards that. But when we say culturally competent, it can be like if you really want to. This is my belief. This is Travis's mm -hmm. opinion. There's no <laughs> science behind this. You know, I believe as a first responder, you have some sort of a passion to want to be in that line of work. Most of us don't just say like, oh, let's five jobs. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go be a cop. And that's just how it worked out. Again, I think there needs to be some sort of passion there to where, you know, like I know Jen, even with her background, she goes to training. She does ride alongs. She wants to understand what are you guys seeing every day? What how what's your culture like at your department? So it takes that investment. It's not a Monday through Friday, nine to five job. These therapists know that. And that's where the passion comes from. So she knew how to deal with me. And um, I needed that. I needed to trust someone because, yeah. yeah, I mean, being able to just ball my eyes out in front of her or tell extremely intimate details of what I was going through, uh, the night terrors or talking about suicidal ideations. And she's yeah. like, yep, very common to hear that. Like, what? What do you mean? Yeah. That's very common because they've made it a point to understand what that is. And, and, I've recently learned this, that in the academic world, when you go to get your degree in therapy, 90% of those professors that are teaching this stuff, they tell professors or tell uh, these upcoming therapists, arm's length, you don't tell them anything about you. There's no trust there. That's not going to work with us. Yeah. And these therapists that are culturally competent understand like, okay, I got to build some sort of relationship here. Yeah. And that's, that's the difference. I think that is absolutely huge there. It's you talk to so many people who are in the therapy field now or ex-cops that are now becoming therapists because we all now see like, wow, we were fucked up for a really long time. We got to figure this out and we got to do better. And who better to help cops than people who have been there and done that? Um, mm -hmm. Even with me and coaching and what you do, like people are going to naturally trust us more because we share what our background was and the things we've been through, which is very, very helpful, even though we're still a very non-trusting um, yeah culture it, it, mm -hmm. it goes a lot faster when you can really prove that you know what you're talking about um and help people through that you talked about peer support for a second and that you lied to them peer support's another hot topic i can't trust him 
-hmm. And honestly, I sit there and I think about it. I'm like, how can we build trust? And I'm like, I honestly don't know because any police department is like a big ass high school and everybody's just talking about everybody. And you don't have that trust there. I was talking to a coworker the other day and I was like, do we have to build like a confessional, like at the Catholic church? And like, you both, like you just set up an appointment and on this day at this time, somebody comes in this side and you come in this side and you have no clue who's talking. You're just able to get shit out. Is that an option? Do we have to use, you know, another agency that comes in and you do peer support with the other agency, but we all know each other in small cities like this. Kansas city has 20 metropolitans around Mm -hmm. and everybody seems to know everybody. So I think that's something we have to work on because you should be able to go to your peer support team and not have to be like, yeah, I totally lied to them. I just needed to get into something (laughs) and hope that it helped. Yeah. One thing that I'm seeing happen back at Mesa with some of my brothers that been on the job for a long time that Quite honestly, five years ago, none of them would have ever thought about being on peer. They are realizing within these special units or within your own division, like, hey, we need to have more peer people. Because, Jess, this is how it is. Like, uh, people may think that because we are a brotherhood, you know, we will, you know, I will lay down my life for that other officer. But at the end of the day, there was a lot of cops I worked with I just didn't like. Yeah. And if that was a peer support. Per- I mean, it just it's the truth. Right. Yeah. If there's a peer support person that they're the ones that get called for our incident, we see them walking up. We're like, turn their ass back around. I don't want to talk to them. And that's it, again, like you said, I don't it's a touchy subject because peer gets really defensive. Like, hey, I'm just telling you how it really goes. Like, we have to be honest if we're going to change how we've done things in the past. So mm-hmm. yeah, peer is not the end. I think it's a good thing. It's not the end all be all. Cause I think a lot of agencies hang their hat on. We have peer. What, they what checked are- a box and they said, we've yeah. got it. Yes. Check the box. That's the thing. And like, it's not the end all be all. We have to do so much more. And it needs to be more well-rounded as well. You've got to have civilians on there because our civilian employees, now that I am one, I understand the side a whole lot better. <laughs> We're seeing shit too. And especially someone that has been in law enforcement before they bring in all that with them experience wise. So you've got to have a well-rounded peer support team because you never know who's actually going to be able to help you. Maybe it's not another cop. Maybe it's the chaplain for the department that's going to be able to help you. Or if your co-responders that most departments now have are on there, but they got to be culturally competent too, man. They got to be on those ride-alongs. They've got to be out there. They've got to understand and be like, yeah. wow, you guys deal with some fucked up shit. Like, okay, I see how people are treating you. Let me help you deal with this. Yeah, I was just, I went through, uh, I became SISM certified last week just because I wanted to see what was going on that crisis. Um, uh, intervention, stress management. So anyways, there are some civilians in there. And those of us that were either current officers or former they could not understand what do you mean that why won't they talk to me what's wrong with the trust and so we were trying to explain to them like hey you're gonna have to do the ride-alongs you're gonna have to show your face because the trust is not built on the day of the stressful incident it's built way prior to that and then once you earn that trust then okay we we might be able to talk to you gotcha yes and i could not agree more i think i think we have a good base for these programs we just, none of us knew what the hell we were doing. And now it's coming out more and more prevalent that we've got to figure these things out to help ourselves and help our, our officers, which yeah. I think that's going to lead us into, so you got out, was it 2016 you got out? No, I, I didn't retire until uh, February of 2022. Oh, so you kept going for quite a while. I kept going. That last call of mine was in March, on March 8th of 2021. 
And then I was off work for a year until my retirement. So yeah, going through, I was in therapy twice a week, just dealing with all that shit. And um, so, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't done until 2022. Okay. Talk to us about that transition because there's a lot of people who are on work comp related things, whether it's a mental or physical injury that they're dealing with. Um, and that in and of itself adds stress on top of what's going on and the, oh my God, I'm not going to be a cop. Can I go back? Can, can you talk about that kind of waiting period almost of March of 2021 through, okay, I'm finally done. What was that like? Not easy. Um, very thankful that I had my team very close knit that they, you know, they checked on me, but I, I mean, quite frankly, as a department as a whole, they kind of abandon you. Um, you're just, you're not part of the process anymore. And there's no check-ins. There's no like, Hey, and you know, I had this thrown in my face one time about, well, they can't talk to you because FMLA stuff. I'm like, they can't talk to you about work stuff under FMLA laws. They can call and say, Hey, we're just checking on you. How's your week going? How are you, how are you doing? You yeah. know, that type of stuff. But even for me having that incredible support network, so hard, Jess. Um, and I feel when I hear other officers reach out to me that are going through that process and then they're like, man, I got nobody. Like I try to walk with them because I know what that's like. And uh, yes. yeah, it's not, again, any of this transition stuff in our line of work in this profession we do a shitty job. I mean, it is not good. Um, I think especially when it's not planned. Like I think retirement, like everyone is really trying to get to that point. And even then, like I hear from people who retired, retired at the end of it. And they're like, what are you, nobody's like calling me anymore. Like I'm not part of the team anymore. Like, well, no, yeah. you're gone. And I do think that is this whole system can be overhauled in so many ways. But when somebody is off on light duty for any injury that happens or they're going through this. It's probably, they're not coming back to work. That's when we need to check on them. Just FYI. Like that is when they need checked on more than anything. Right. And it's, it gives me goosebumps to hear you say that you had no support. I had no support. Plenty of people that have shared their story. It's like, I had no support. Like I didn't even know where to turn for advice or like, I felt weird reaching out to them. Like they should be checking on Like where'd my brothers go? It's this yeah. crazy, like, and it adds to the stress on top of everything. You literally feel so alone no one gets it your family can't get it because they're not cops well you yeah. now have a wife right. that's a cop, but and for me my husband is a cop my now husband but I'm like a lot of people don't have that and yeah. you're added back into your family life and that's adding stress on top of things you're like where the fuck am I going to pay my bills from that's on top of it it's all yeah. these things that we don't think about or prepare for and we're like mm -hmm. okay sure yeah I guess I'll figure this out and you have no yeah. desire to figure it out. Cause for me, I was hoping to still go back. Were you hoping you were going to get cleared and go back or were you like, yeah. just get done? Yeah. And it wasn't a fact of me being cleared. I, I went out on a short-term disability for a while and I had, I had to personally make the decision. Was I going to try to come back or was I not? And I just, between Emily and I, my wife and my therapist, you know, we made the decision like, Hey, the best thing is for me to put in the retirement, which was not guaranteed. It had to go before a retirement board. They had to decide, like, if my case, I had to go see independent medical examiners, go see if it was okay. And, uh, again, very stressful process. And, you know, you're talking about um, other people have gone through. One of the things I saw people change or just their whole perspective on what the department meant to them is during uh, someone's off from a physical injury because they're on their own fighting for workman's comp to pay for stuff. 
maybe they're fighting for the right surgery and the department just usually just kind of like, like, Hey, that's out of our control. That's workman's comp yeah. and people just get crushed. Yeah. And again, this is like this, you talk about these transition times of I've seen, it's just a very difficult time to be away and not feeling that support. Like, Hey, I got injured in the line of duty. Why am I having to fight for being taken care of? So something I've seen a lot lately, and I don't know if it's because more people are talking about it like we are right now, but it says something like I gave you my life or I dedicated my life and you gave me a receipt or something like that at the end. Yeah. You don't. And I think that is something like, and I'm not bashing law enforcement. I loved my time right. in law enforcement. I love the profession. I think it's very noble, but it has a lot to be desired and it has a lot of work to do to better support the people choosing choosing to do this job. And I'm just like, they don't, I'm not trying to be mean. They don't care about you, especially when you're gone. It's a mm-hmm. business guys. Like they are just going to fill your spot. They're going to move on. Yep. It, they don't care. And it sounds really heartbreaking and crushing and people who haven't been through it refuse to believe it. <laughs> I'm like, but no, listen, like every way to the podcast, listen, you will hear stories and examples of how that's true. And it's not to break your heart. It's not to make you hate your department. It's to make you take care of yourself mm-hmm. and be ready for this transition whenever it might happen, because it could happen tomorrow. You don't know. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I assume you didn't go to that last call thinking, yep, this is my last call. This is my not last shot. Yeah, I didn't at all. Yeah. I mean, looking back <clears throat> when I tell people that it's still like, man, that was my last call going there. I just come home from a barricade. I was home for 45 minutes to get the call to a hostage rescue. Like, okay, just doing my thing. And yep, that was it. So last call I was ever on. Yeah. And I've talked to a lot of people recently who talk about that. Like, yeah, I got done with my shift. I hung myself up in my locker, fully expecting to be back. And, uh, I never went back. And then when they did go back, it was because things were done and finalized. And they're like, the department packed up my shit in a box and was like, here, come get this. You didn't even get the honor, the dignity of like, taking your own shit out of your locker, boxing it up and yep. doing all the things. And I remember that vividly. I'm like, that's all I got was here's my shit. Yeah. See you later. Not even a, not even a thanks for your service. <laughs> Didn't get to keep a memento. You're like, that was really it. Mm-hmm. Cause I remember my shit was hanging in my locker. I'm like, Oh, and until somebody said that last week on an interview, I was like, honestly, I didn't even think about that. And I was right. off for eight months for mine mm-hmm. before I went back. Yep. So you go back and you're like, Oh, well, that stinks. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah, we, used, we used to joke about the team when, you know, we'd have one of the senior guys, he's retiring or whatever. I mean, it'd be three months away and we're like, Hey, what kind of gear you got? Cause I want to get your stuff. Like, we don't care. Like, bye. Can we get that new rifle you just got? Like last week that, I mean, that's literally, and I used to be one of those true believers. Like you'd hear the old crusty people saying, Oh, you know, F this department, that and this. I'm like, man, you guys suck until it hits you like you said and you realize that's why yeah i always give people advice like yes noble profession i loved it i do not regret anything that i did however advocate for yourself and because i promise that you are your biggest advocate and someday they may turn their back on you or just not give you the support that you were thinking you would get yeah and here's the deal guys i'm not trying to tell you to like go around bashing your department and be like they're not going to give a shit about me when i'm done No, advocate for yourself. Like you said, be confident in who you are, what you're doing, do what you need to do. Even if it's not the popular thing to do, do that. Let people see that example. Let other people be influenced by that example. Even the department, when you think they're not watching, they might be watching the right person might be watching and be like, huh, 
okay, <laughs> maybe we could change a few things here. Um, and a conversation I had the other day with someone was they don't know until it happens to them. Uh, even I don't want to bring it up, but the shooting today at the at the Super Bowl thing, people were like, you hear about it all the time, but until you are actually impacted by it, even a violent crime, we do it all the time with the people on calls. Nobody cares until it actually impacts you or your family. And then you, oh my God, I want the world and I want you to change and I want you to do your job. And well, you right. didn't want me to do my job last week when I had to arrest you. But now that, you know, it's it's this thing and it's really this, we all have the responsibility of changing this within our own departments and within our own communities. Because sure. if you're not affected by it, why? And I, yeah. I keep training people now or telling people, prepare today for what could happen tomorrow. We know yeah. as cops, tomorrow's not promised. We know mm -hmm. that it's unknown and unexpected as to what's going to happen. Your career could be over from an injury, a horrible call. And you're like, holy shit, that fucked me up way more than I thought. Mm -hmm. It happens. And it is okay to say that. You've got to right. say that to help yourself and your family. Um, so I am so glad that you're talking on this podcast about all of that. Because there's not enough people, and especially males, I feel like. So I am eternally grateful that guys are starting to step up and say these things. Everyone expects it from me. But <laughs> they don't necessarily expect it from a guy to say hey these are the things that i went through and this is what it took for me to get better and this is what it took for me to move on and transition so let's get into that you you had that time off you finally made the decision you're like yep i'm i'm out it got approved obviously what did you go into did you have a time off period did you jump right into something what was that like so emily and i had already bought uh just about 14 acres up in the mountains of montana Nice. And I was, yeah, our goal, that was like the end goal. I was planning on probably retiring in about five to six years. And we were just going to come up here and that's where we're going to end up. And um, because of that, we decided to speed up the process. Luckily, we sold our house at a really good time in Arizona and came up here. And I really didn't have a huge plan. She was leaving the profession since I was retiring. She was ready to get out. So that was fine. And we were just going to come up here work. I did have a construction job lined okay. up. And it's funny because I'm not a construction guy. I barely read a tape measure. But <laughs> but up here, they need work so bad. This guy that was actually sold me the property, he's like, hey, come work for me. So that's what I was going to do. And I did do it for a while. But literally, while I was driving up, moving stuff up, I get a call from a guy in northern Montana that used to work in Tri-City, Washington area. And we knew each other from the national SWAT community. And okay. he wanted me to come do a leadership conference just to talk, do one of my debriefs from one of our call outs. Okay. So I hung up the phone. I was going to do that. And um, I just had a thought that I'd say, hey, how about I called him back and said, what do you think about me talking about my story about lessons learned, you know, kind of go the SWAT route of like, hey, don't be Travis. These are things I wish I would have <laughs> done different. Yeah. And you know, what you can do to help with your mental health. Talk to him a little bit about EMDR. He said, sure, man, let's try it. And uh, I did that like two weeks later, had this basic PowerPoint and it actually went over really well. And just so happened that somebody was in that audience um, that was friends with uh, Andy Stump from the Cleared Hot podcast. Like he's been on Rogan and stuff. He has a pretty big podcast, former Navy or SEAL Team 6 guy. And he lives in Kalispell. And by the time I got home, he was texting, wanting me to be on the podcast. Wow. And so I, I was like, what the fuck me? Like, why do you want me on your podcast? So 
and I didn't even know about this guy because I was I'm not a huge podcaster guy. I am I am more so now than I ever was. But yeah. um, so I did that, and then kind of stuff started blowing up in the state of Montana, where I created a you know this organization called My Arena, and where I go around doing uh, a presentation about my story. But then one really unique thing is I have I have two therapists that I have uh, vetted therapists I work with here in Montana that all they handle now is first responders that they travel with me and give the the perspective from a therapist what I was going through why I was going through talking about what happens with a cognitive break mm -hmm. and PS and all this stuff and then my former therapist from Arizona she travels the country and now it, it it's just blown up. Uh, yeah, I travel coast to coast and do a ton of stuff here in the state of Montana. And so I'm fortunate that I've had this. I never, if you'd have told me, you know, 18 months ago, you yep. know, I would like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm not. Yep. I'm not. <laughs> well, your goals, let me just tell you that, like, for those of us <laughs> watching it unfold, like, holy shit, like, let that happen. But I want to talk for a second about the power of networking and getting in the room because you just mentioned both of them and it's two things that cops hate to do. They hate getting out of their comfort zone. You want me to talk in front of a group of people and share my story vulnerably? I'm sorry, what the fuck did you just say? So please talk about that for a minute about not only the connections you can make throughout your career, like you said, national SWAT. So you're going yeah. to these and you're meeting people, but then doing that uncomfortable thing. Sure, yeah, I'll talk about this. And then getting in that room with all these other people who you never know who the hell is going to hear what you're doing and pick you up and just take you to the next level. Agreed. So first of all, I've always been a huge believer in networking. Good. So I guess it kind of comes from, you know, my SWAT experience with my team back in Mesa. We always were sending people to the conferences, different schools. I believed in talking to whoever I could. I'm one that like I sit down on an airplane, I'm going to talk to someone next to me because I just don't know, you know, Please who don't might get on a plane with me. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, you never you never know who you might be. Right. Or, you know? And um but that was huge because yeah, this guy that I had met 10 years ago gave me this shot. Yeah. Um and it was going to be like the SWAT world and then I'm like, "Hey, pitch this other idea." It's like, "Sure, let's freaking try it." Mm -hmm. And then boom, it goes from there. And Yes. Step stepping out of my comfort zone was big for me because I have been instructing for years and years in SWAT schools, hostage rescue schools. That was easy because mm -hmm. I'm teaching tactics to get up and talk about intimate side of things that were I was dealing with was no joke. Um, and it is still there are nerves every time I'm getting ready. I usually, you know, the first 15, 20 minutes, I get warmed up and I'm like jamming, yep. but it, it is always a, you're always like, man, what am I, what imposter syndrome? Why the fuck they want to talk to me? You know? Yes. <laughs> Every damn day. <laughs> yeah. So I struggle with that and I still do. So don't, I think that's very common. Um, mm -hmm. And we do as law enforcement officers, we get very comfortable in our routines and what our audience is. And I think, yes, that's another reason why I love what you're doing, because I was thinking about as we were leading up to this conversation, I believe that former LEOs have an incredible skill set. Number one, I believe like logistics, I believe in like us organizing, running, that kind of stuff, putting something together. I think it comes naturally to us. 
I think dealing with stress in the world outside of law enforcement, it's like we're wiping it off our shoulder. I'll yeah. give you a perfect example. Like a good friend of my wife's that worked, she worked at Seattle PD. She ended up leaving because she married a guy who wanted to get out of law enforcement. And she works for UPS now in Missoula, Montana. She's a rock star. And she always, she's joking about all the time, like where these people come in and they get stressed over things. At the end of the day, it's going to work out. We're talking about maybe some deliveries got fucked up yeah. versus she'll be like, hey, guess what? We don't have a vest on today. We're not carrying a gun and someone doesn't want to kill us today. Yeah. And it, you know what I mean? So I think, yeah. and that's why I don't think we do a very good job at marketing ourselves, yeah. but I think that we can do better. And that's why I love what you do. But um, getting out of that comfort zone and being like, hey, I, people will have a lot more respect for you than you think just because where you came from. 100%. So, yeah. Yep. And I think something, too, about the trainings, because we've all been sent to those trainings we don't want to freaking go to. Like, what are you doing? But again, yeah. the two things we can control in this life are our attitude and our effort. So, sure, I'm getting sent to this training I don't want to go to. My mind is thinking, future, who the hell am I going to meet in this room? How can mm -hmm. I be the best that I can be while I'm there? If the training material sucks, the training material sucks. Who can I meet? What conversations can I have? Where can this lead in the future? Get that contact information. You literally never know when you're going to need it. Even in the field, you might need it for a case or something. You might, they might be a detective in another state. Hey, have you had something like this? Like, what the fuck? We've never yeah. seen something like this or a different size department, maybe. Ooh, I'm at this small department. We don't see this very often. How do you do this? Yep. It's incredible what can happen when you do that. Um, I felt like when you were talking about being vulnerable in a room, uh, with your people, does that get easier every time you do it? Uh, it, it depends on who my audience is and I never know. So I have the hardest time when it's nothing but SWAT guys. Cause I do some of that stuff yeah. because they definitely know what I do or what I came from. So, um, we did something for FBI hostage rescue in Quantico, all the teams there, Jen and I went and did that. I was nervous as shit about that. Cause I'm like, again, great. What do they want to hear? But every single time I'm like, okay, this worked, you know? And I do believe talking to some people that have been doing that kind of stuff forever, that is healthy at times. It is good for me to have that little bit of like, a mm, little bit of the stomach turn. Yeah. It's making yeah. sound sharp. It's, you know, just get up and start talking. I know now it's going to be fine every time. So, and it definitely does get easier as you keep going like, yeah, okay, we'll come do this event. Let's go, you know, fired up, ready to deliver the message that we try to deliver. So yeah, it does get easier, but I think some of that, I always hope that it's still a little bit there, like saying, Hey, you know, be ready to give your best today. Are you ready? You know, those types of things. And that means it matters when you start kind of getting that reaction. It means it matters to you and that it's important that you're sharing this information. Um, I feel like my brain is just like going all over the place right now. So many <laughs> questions. And if I don't write a little note to myself, I'm like, what? Yeah. Um, I do want to ask, how do people get you to speak? Are they reaching out to you and saying, Hey, can you come speak here? Or are you reaching out to certain people and getting these speaking gigs? So again, I'm super, uh, I get humbled by this all the time that I don't just, I don't, I, I advertise obviously on social media, what I do, right. We put out our events, but every event I ever book, it's because someone heard about me either on a podcast or mm -hmm. they were at an event, uh, like a, a open event and they want to bring me back to their department. Like Thank that's, you. that's what happens. And, and nationwide um, you said, so it's not just, yeah, you go. 
we go from, I've been as far East as, you know, New York and then doing events in California, everything in between Ohio, Michigan. I mean, it's all over the place. So yeah. And is it all law enforcement agencies? Is it first responders? Is it military? So we've, so we've had a couple of different things with that as well. So some organizations like for conferences will open it up to everybody, obviously, or like I just, we did something in January for Canton, Ohio, the union and the department brought us in, but they opened it up to all surrounding agencies. And it's funny because I talk about that, that we now have two other events scheduled in July of this year from that, from people that heard us. And then we'll have some organizations that they will make it. And this is obviously smaller departments, not the real large ones, but um, like Missoula County, we had, and they had um, two different days, but they made it pretty mandatory that everyone was coming from corrections to dispatch, all of that. And yes, we're always open to veterans as well. And um, we've done, yeah, we've done stuff for dispatch conferences. Uh, We're doing something in New York in May for a disaster relief conference. So just all, yeah, it just, because trauma is trauma. You know, my story is kind of bridging that gap to like, hey, you can probably picture things in your profession of this. I mean, it is first responder profession dispatch. We've had medical staff, like the ER room people, mm-hmm. that type of stuff where like, Hey, you can probably associate with the calls I'm about to tell you about. So. Yeah. And I'm glad you bring that up too, because we often as law enforcement or even first responders get in this, nobody understands or whatever. And you said you were watching my stories earlier about the shooting downtown at the Super Bowl parade. And I had this whole thing because I never once cared who else was being bothered by the trauma or seeing or doing the things that I did. I didn't think about the ER nurses when I took somebody in there. I didn't think about the doctors or the radiology techs that were having to scan the dead baby or anything like that. Like I didn't think about that. I, I don't care about you. Like I'm having to deal with this. I push it down. I move on and I'm good. But since getting out and it's been like eight years, I'm like, I was just looking at all these stories today. And I was like, dude, that radiologist just had to scan that little kid or that doctor just had to do surgery on this little kid who was shot at a freaking Super Bowl parade. Like, wow, there's a lot of people affected by this. And it's not the suspect. It's the suspect's family. It's the victim. It's the victim's family. There's so many people. It is not a one-on-one crime as much as people want to think it is. Um, So I'm glad you're including people because dispatchers are unsung heroes. They are the lifeline to the department and so often forgotten about by sworn. And now that I'm on the other side, I see it a whole lot differently. Um, And have mad respect. I could never do that job. I would never want to do that job. Or picture the things that they have to picture because they're not dealing with it in person. And often those images are far worse than anything that we actually see um, because you're just making up and you don't know. You're you're asking what if constantly. So I'm glad to hear that we're broadening resources for the entire scope of law enforcement, not just necessarily the officers. Granted, we need it. Um, I finally made my notes of what I was going to ask you when you were talking about your story and sharing it. Do you find each time you do that, that it's a little more therapeutic because for me, it was therapy. I feel like sharing my story each time. It's really like therapy. Definitely. I mean, I don't know, like I do get emotional sometimes still. Uh, I do not know whenever that's going to pop up. (laughs) I have the pleasure of traveling with three therapists. So they're constantly are keeping an eye on me, but I have come to found like, like if when I talk about suicide pretty in depth, Mm -hmm. um, I had, my best friend was going down that road. I show a video from him and a podcast I did. 
And I found that, you know, maybe earlier in that week, I had some stressful things happen personally, whatever. And when mm -hmm. I get to my event, I'm carrying a heavier load and I start talking and some things come up, you know, mm -hmm. I never know. Or I've gotten through a few presentations where I have, you know, I'm able to get through. I have a very, it's all part of the therapy, but when I'm telling these stories, you know, for instance, my big call in 2016, I say, you know, she's safe today. You rescued her. This is not happening right now. Yeah. I literally am reciting these things in my head as I'm getting ready to share the information. <clears throat> so there's a whole process, but yeah, it is, it definitely, there's so much good coming out of it. I do have a connection absolutely with an uh, organization that takes care of this little girl still, uh, 501c3, just with her new adoptive parents and everything that I, so I have connection with them and it's just, we've been communicating like, holy shit. Like someday we hope to be able to share with her, like you went through freaking hell on an unimaginable, right. <clears throat> but this is what, you know, good has come of it. And thank you so much, you know, those types of things. So it is therapeutic though. Yeah, for sure. And I wrote another thing. Do you think that the more of us, and I will be very honest, I have never had a suicidal ideation in my life. And I consider mm -hmm. myself blessed because there's yeah. shit that I went through that I'm like, I don't feel like a normal person can go through that. And even looking back and reflecting, you're like, oh, wow, I did that. Wow. Um, <laughs> and I, I consider myself blessed, but I know that that is not the norm. I know that there are more out there who are having these ideations and we're going on calls. We're dealing with people who are doing this. We're probably projecting a little bit onto yeah. them. Um, do you think this is how we start ending the stigma of this by actually having the real conversation like hey I thought about killing myself and this is how I was going to do it and you know all of the details because mm -hmm. we need to hear it as cops that okay I'm not alone or oh wow you did that too mm -hmm. do you think that's how we get on this path of ending that I do, I do. like and I've, I've heard some things like hey we can't talk about suicide because it pushes people to go towards that and that is not it's not factual the suicidal ideations now if you're if you're coming down to like yep I have a plan I'm doing it tomorrow we now have went down this road that we've got to deal with, right? Versus a suicidal ideation, you are dealing with trauma, you're having a hard time escaping the pain, you're probably coping with negative things, drinking, whatever it is, and you see your handgun, you're like, yeah, I could do that because I'm sick of hurting. Yeah. You know, those types of fleeting thoughts. Yeah. And what we need to do is our organizations need to not panic when those things come up. We can't go, we don't, you know, take their guns, take their IDs, 72 hour hold, all this bullshit, because no one's ever going to come forward then yeah. and say, hey, I need some help, you know, and that's fine. Because when I told my therapist, you know, I hadn't even told Emily that I had, you know, thought of suicide. And when I told her and she's like, okay, Travis, that's a normal profession, but we need it or normal thought, we need to talk about it. Yeah. And so I'm like, oh, shit. And then the next day when I went to go see a psychiatrist, because she wanted me to go on medication to get me stabilized. I tell him, he's like, okay, very normal, uh, you know, thought and your profession and veterans, like, let's discuss it. I'm like, holy hell, why has no one ever told me this? You so know? you're being reinforced saying things that you're terrified to say, cause nobody's going to get it or you're going to get your shit taken. And they're like, exactly. oh, no, like that's literally your profession. Like that's, I don't want to say the norm, but it's the norm yeah. in your profession. Like it's more common than we think. So I, I love what you're doing. And on your, on your profile, you have cop line listed yeah. up there. I had never heard about, again, I kind of ran away from this profession for like seven years. So I was yeah. like, mm -hmm, nope. <laughs> but I think it was 
this year or the end of last year, I learned about Copline. Could you talk about that for just a minute? So people listening, yeah. if this is a resource you could utilize that you please utilize this. So, so yeah, so Copline is uh, based out of the East Coast. Their founder, you know, I got her permission to use this stuff, um, but they they staff phones 24 seven, 365 with prior law enforcement that they are there just for someone to talk to. If you don't feel comfortable coming forward to your peer group, your organization, they are there to walk you through the crisis that you're in. So yeah, I never, that's super important because when I go and do my events, <clears throat> I put that number up there and I say, every one of you should have this phone number in because it may be for you or maybe for a partner of yours that, hey, I don't know how to deal with this, but guess what? I have Copline that can help you. We need more stuff like that, so. And they are vetted. They go through a training to make sure that they can handle these calls. Obviously, they're going to make sure they're healed from whatever traumas they've had. And so they can take yours on when they when you call them. But I, yes. I love when I heard about that. Go ahead. Yeah, just it's a 40 hour training and it's free. So I would if anyone's listening to this, they're like, hey, I'm getting ready to go out and I still want to give back to something which I am a big believer in. When you retire law enforcement, you still should be probably be doing something. Um but it's just a way to give back and be there for your brothers and sisters, you know, to in that day that they just don't have any other place to turn. And they, you might be the one that they call on that line that day and you could save their life. So I think that's gigantic. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And something you just said right there, like when you leave, you got to find a way to give back and lack of purpose and lack of identity are two of the huge pieces when people are getting out, they're like, ah, and I will tell you, I ran from the law enforcement world. Obviously, my husband is in it. But so I stayed connected through that. But I didn't want anything to do with it. And then seven years later, later, full circle moment, like, what do you want to do? Da, 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 it comes out. Oh, my God, I could help ex-cops who are transitioning because I did that and it sucked and there were no resources. Oh, my God. So I'm getting to serve the community I once served alongside. I finally, seven years, guys, <laughs> finally felt purpose in something I was doing again. I finally felt passion for what I was doing. Um, I became a cop to give a voice to victims who couldn't or wouldn't speak. I get to do that now for cops who can't and won't speak because of their department or whatever it is, or they're transitioning and they feel like a wimp or whatever it is. So, so many are now looking to transition. I want to work at Exxon. I want to work at Flock. I want to work at... Guys, we can be entrepreneurs, just FYI. Look at the two of us. Like, we talk about using our skill sets and our personalities to like make the world a better place. Entrepreneurship is where it's at, but I know it's not for everybody. But using your story can lead to those things and lead to opportunities that you said it to. You're like, what would I, 18 months ago, I would not have thought. I right. never saw entrepreneurship as an option in my life. What? No, give me, give me a boss, give me a command, you know, staff, give me, you know, people I'm answering. And now I'm like, absolutely not. Do I want any part of that? I want to make the rules. I want to be the one doing what I want to do and not asking for time off all the things. So I think we just really have to look at the skill sets we have and really figure out how to translate that. And if you need a mentor or a coach, there's plenty of us out here now saying, Hey, we made the transition. Like literally come talk to us. Um, yeah. Conversations are free guys. Like we can have conversations. If you need more in depth, sure. You're going to pay a coach. Like, I'm sorry. That's part of the deal. Um, yeah. But you mentioned earlier, like logistics being a thing. If you've ever put a SWAT op together, you got logistics down guys. Like you, you know what you're doing. You just have to really change the thoughts in your head and, oh yeah, okay, I've done that and how to translate that into the real world if that's where you're looking to go. So thank you for bringing up the skills and 
still being able to work with law enforcement like you do, I think that helps your transition so much when you're staying connected to something that meant so damn much to you. It's not a complete 180 and like, what the fuck am I doing? I don't even know what I'm doing out here kind of thing. And so many are trying to get away from it or stay in it in some way. I think the more successful transitions are staying connected to it in some way, shape or form because that's a culture shock. Yep. And I, yeah, I think one of the biggest, yeah, one of the biggest problems we do in law enforcement, the only thing we usually talk about retirement is I'm just going to make enough money and get enough of my 401k so I don't have to do shit when I walk out of here. I honestly have not seen that work very well for too many people. I've Um, literally never seen someone actually retire and not work. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So we, it's this weird thing of like, I've even had that you know, I didn't necessarily plan for it, even though I had that year, but I wasn't thinking, I was so focused in the moment. What am I going to do? Cause I still have had, um, I, I love being my own boss, making my own stuff. It has been a challenge for me at times to where, yeah, Travis, you can enjoy this Tuesday. You don't have anything going today. Very hard for me because you know, the man is usually telling us like, yep, when your shift is, oh, and you got your phone in case there's a call out, Oh, okay, I'll be ready. And that's what we do. And you do 24 years or longer, whatever it is. And you're like, um, okay, nobody's telling me what to do. I, I make the rules now. That's, that's the transition stuff. Even if it's, I believe in, if you're in transition, like, yep, I'm going to go hunt, fish, sit on my patio. You need to have a plan. I just, I think you do. Talk to me a little bit about routine. Did you keep or develop a routine that helped with that? Because again, even as an entrepreneur, sure, you don't have calls or a speaking engagement or travel on this Tuesday, but like, do you have something that every day you have some non-negotiables maybe that you do? I do. Yeah, I'm definitely always get my workouts in. Um, Even like during the week, I make sure that I get up the same time, you know, during the week for sure. Of course, I'll allow myself, okay, I'm not going to set an alarm. It's Sunday. And that's, I still usually get up the same time, but I'm not going to set my alarm. Very routine. I'm going to get my workouts in. I'm going to do, you know, I journal a couple times a week. I have these things, um, even with organizing my business. Like my big thing as a team leader was like, I always have my whiteboard tasks to do. What's got to be done with this? What are the events coming up? I still, again, it's using the skill set that I learned from our profession of like, hey, this can transition into this. Thing. And like you talked about logistics, like, yeah, I, I could go on and on about logistics. <laughs> I think about it like I worked in the construction world for a little bit. I'm like, I could run a freaking construction job. No problem. It's like easy. Like, OK, once you do a couple things, you like make sure, OK, this has got to be done next. OK, get the plumber in line. These types of skill sets. We did it every shift. Yeah. Like we managed our time. We dealt with stress that it's but so many guys I have, I mean, I just had a good friend of mine, uh, 29 years and I'm checking in with him. Cause it, you know, the week of his retirement, I, he's getting his uniform ready. He's like, I guess this is it. I'm yeah. like, yeah, it's it. Like, how are you doing? What are you going to do? He's like, I don't know. Like, okay, well, um, we, we got to talk about this because yeah, I talk about it. <laughs> because it's easy to get, okay, I'll just have another drink or I'll do this or like, oh, you know, it, it just, it, you got to have some sort of a plan. We don't, um, not to say again, I'm never a hundred percent all the time. There's probably someone out there that they walked away 
they hunt and fish every day and do whatever they want and they're perfectly fine. And those are the people meant to hear this message. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Majority of us do not. We need some sort of plan, a transition. What are we going to do? And I, I'm a firm believer in giving back some way. Um, I like being able to do it. I'm not. Yes, we're giving back as police officers. But now what we do, we're giving back and not that violent environment. We're still serving our communities. You know what I mean? But I think that's good because I think we naturally, I think a lot of us, unfortunately, you get jaded and you lose that heart for service. And maybe we find it at, at retirement of like, hey, how can I get involved and help people again? You know, or with that good attitude. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, at least for me personally, was helping people who want to be helped versus those we had no control. They didn't want our help. <laughs> we were forcing it on them. And yep. I think that was the biggest shift for me to give a little bit of that back to myself was getting roles where, no, these people want to be helped. And even if I took roles that weren't doing that, it was showcasing to me, yeah, you're done with that lifestyle. Like you are done, move on to whatever, push yourself out of your comfort zone and move on. And I know we got to wrap up soon. I know we got to do, but you said something. And I think a lot of people look at someone with a 24 year career. I know I do. And I'm like, wow, they got a full career. Basically you got this full career. You did a great job of like moving to different units. I did the different units, you know, patrol detective sergeant. And then obviously other people do different ranks and things that is crucial guys when you're still in the departments and you're looking you're stuck on patrol and you're feeling stuck and you're like oh my god i hate this ball you have got to get off of patrol you've mm -hmm. got to get off of patrol not only for your own mental health and to be more well-rounded as an officer while you're working it but for later you're developing skills and different mindsets and perspectives every single time you do a different type of role get off of patrol <laughs> get off do three years start moving i don't care if it's a dream job or just well, have some interest in it so you freaking do a decent job, but like move somewhere. <laughs> I don't care if it's traffic, if it's detective, school resource. Everybody I've talked to that school resource officer loves their life and that was their favorite role. So yeah. kudos to you. I can't stand kids, but like go do go do something else and don't have this. Well, they already know who they want for those roles. Your yeah. attitude and your effort. That's what you can control. Focus on yeah. those two things, put the effort in have a good freaking attitude about it when you're going around bitching about they're already going to pick some yes they're probably going to pick that other person so no i agree yeah. and you made a good point use the department to plan your future like yeah. i had all these that like oh i'm going to financial crimes i'm like why the fuck are you doing that like, <laughs> what i'm getting ready for retirement and i know there's big money in that shit in the civilian world i'm like oh that's probably a good plan you know yeah. so you go to training right like you said do some things to open up your world to different things. And that I will tell you, even though, I mean, I did SWAT, there are times where I'm like, man, I should have branched out a little bit more, but I was so, I mean, SWAT, it's just a lot of years of skill set, And once you get in, it's, it, it's hard to walk away from, but. SWAT is its yeah. own thing. And it is like for a certain person and uh, I'm glad you guys do it. <laughs> um, which leads me to the question I love to ask is what advice do you have for those people maybe in looking to get out or they're burned out or they're like, I'm just a cop, man. There's nothing else I can do. Like they're getting that hopeless feeling already. They're telling themselves this shit. What do you have for them advice wise? So I would say this, I know there's always this thing, the golden handcuffs. Well, I'm stuck here now. I'm going to be mm -hmm. here. I got to get the pension. Mm -hmm. I do believe that's changing. 
I, I believe that, hey, I, I saw something recently. Someone was estimating they believe like a 10 year for a cop and they're out is maybe going to be around 10 years and people are going to start transitioning out to go do something different. I think of days of past, we were different because we've, we've seen that going on for a while, right? That they'd say generations like, oh, you're going to have three or four jobs before you're 40 or three or four different careers. Why can't law enforcement be the same? If you are at that point and you're 10 years and you hate going to the shift and all that, create a plan to do something different. Yes. You can, you, there, there are jobs out there again through someone like you that can teach like, hey, how does my skill set transition here? How can I market myself? Those types of things. Get off this thing. And I, you know, Jess, I think some, our profession as a whole kind of, they preach that like, oh, you're in here now. You're never going to leave. Yep. You know, you're going to at least get your 20. Well, yep. then I just don't want you to hate life. You yep. know, I don't. You get one chance at it, guys. One chance. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I don't, I mean, I don't think it's terrible. Of course, you know, my law enforcement blood says, shit, we need the people to stay in the profession because of experience. Right. And I think you're always going to have that. But I don't, if you're one of those people that think you can't do anything else, I mean, I could probably name five examples of different people walked away early and they're, they have another career and they're doing awesome and they're happier because they were done with law enforcement. That just wasn't for them anymore. So, yeah. And I think I saw something the other day talking about, should we have, um, service contracts, kind of like the military. There's been this whole discussion about military and fire. Oh, and I guess yeah. we fired up as a hill we need to climb on the benefits and all the things. But yeah. I saw it and I was like, you know, I won. Would have never thought about that. Should we, you know, four years at a time or something like that? I'm like, honestly, I'm not mad at that idea. Yeah. Like if that were to be a thing, um, you can re-up no problem. If you choose to get yeah. out, okay, there's no dishonor in it. Like, okay. Yeah. Because for me personally, every four years-ish is when I felt a burnout. So yeah. I was like, okay, most of the people I talked to today, eight to 11 years is kind of where they're at. And that like, mm. I don't have another 10, 15, 20 years. In, like, I just don't. And yeah. I'm like, one, we can't predict the future. So you might, but I also am like, if you're already thinking it, maybe it's mm. time to start exploring. Maybe you realize, okay, no, I do want to be a cop. I took a year off between departments and yeah. I was like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be a cop. So I went back. And now I'm done. Like I am good. <laughs> I, I am solid yeah. now, but it it's not a bad idea to me. Jess, that, I mean, my mind just went a thousand different directions yep. <laughs> because I guess if you're in the union world thinking like, yeah, we're going to do four-year contracts because why are you offering laterals $10,000 bonus to come over here? If you want me to stay, I want a bonus. You know what I mean? That, yep. I mean, it is definitely something to think about yep. to where, and it can also be I mean, you know, departments that, I mean, you know, there's people that stay in the profession that you're like, I can't believe you weren't fired 10 years ago, you know, to where the department can also say, we're not renewing your contract. And these are the reasons why, you know, but it's done every place else. Right. I mean, that is an interesting. I, I, thought so too. I was like, yeah. Oh, that's thoughts for the brain. Okay. Let's work with this. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting um okay we're gonna wrap up guys i promise my last question for you and i love this one it usually stumps people so i want to see what you do the biggest change you've seen in yourself since getting out i'm happier yeah. easy yeah um i think after a long career i don't get you may have only been five years in to where you, you your personality can literally change to yeah. what i mean 
I know for my first day on the job to what it was 24 years, that person, you could see the resemblance, but what goes on in my head and all that, yeah. totally different. Um, so I would say I'm, I'm happier and more at peace because it's just, that. I mean, the profession, I, again, noble, I would do it all over again, but it takes a toll. Yeah. I mean, it just does. So yeah, yeah. I'm happy. I love that. I absolutely do. Where can people find you and follow you if they're wanting to get some more Travis in their life? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram. It's at uh, my underscore dot arena. And then I have a website, um, uh, my arena, LLC.com. You can go and check that out. It tells more about what our mission is and all that. And then, yeah, I usually post where our events are. And I tell everyone this, like I, I am very, um, good about you reach out, you have questions, you need assistance. Hey, Travis, I'm trying kind of struggling. I don't know who to go to. I, I answer emails. I answer text messages. Why don't you tell me who you are? I don't just random, but those types of things, like I want to be there for people that they're just struggling. Cause I know full well, sometimes your agencies, you don't know where to turn. So, and I have, you know, you know, I work with the overwatch collective. I have them, I have places we can send you to get you the assistance you might need. So yeah. And I think that's what's huge too. That is a change I've seen in myself is the collaboration over competition type thing. Yeah. I don't give a fuck where you get help. I'm going to help you get the help that you need. If it's not me, I'll send you to Travis. I'll send you to Greg over at the Overwatch Collective. I'll send you to my culturally competent therapist I know. I'll send you wherever I need to send you to get the yeah. help that you need because I know what it's like not to have it or anyone yeah. to turn to and be like, what? So yeah. don't ever be turned off if I'm trying to send you somewhere else. I have a very narrow skill set of what I'm doing with people. If it's not me, I'm going to find you somebody that can do it better than me and not waste your time or money. Agreed. Yep. Awesome. Well, Travis, thank you so very much for being here and for sharing part of your story. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this episode. Thank you so very much for choosing to spend your time with me. If you loved it, I'd be honored if you shared it with a friend or your social media network, but be sure to tag me so I can reach out and personally thank you. Until next time, see you next shift.